So we say that the book of Hebrews, the theme of this book is very simple. Jesus is better. And we're going to see today in Hebrews chapter 9 that Jesus has brought us a better covenant based on better promises. And that better covenant and those better promises bring us eternal redemption and the promise of an eternal inheritance, which is our salvation. Hebrews chapter 9 gives us really in graphic detail the picture of the Jewish feast of atonement. So as the writer of Hebrews is going through, as he writes this letter, remember he's writing to a group of Hebrews. These are Hebrew believers who lived in Italy, and they wanted to go back to Jerusalem to offer sacrifice at the temple. Because under the law, three times a year, every male was commanded to appear before the Lord in Jerusalem. And so they wanted to go back to Jerusalem and offer sacrifice in the temple. The Feast of Atonement was one of those times where they were um, all gathered together uh, there in Jerusalem. So this doesn't tell us whether they wanted to go back for a particular feast, but we do have the imagery specifically of this feast, and it's presented to us here in vivid fashion in Hebrews chapter 9, and we'll talk about that a little bit as we go on. So this imagery we see is of the high priest on the Day of Atonement going behind the veil. He enters into the first part of the tabernacle behind the first veil, and then he goes into the second part of the tabernacle behind the second veil into the holiest of all, into the most holy place to sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat to atone for the sins of the nation. And all the people are waiting. They see the priests go in, and they're waiting for the priest to come out. He goes in with the blood to apply it for sin. When he comes out, he comes out again apart from sin, having applied the blood. The fact that the priest comes out and appears a second time means that God has accepted the sacrifice that the priest brought. And so this is the picture we see here. The appearing of him a second time reveals that God accepted the sacrifice And all of this pictures for us Christ. All of this imagery of the tabernacle and the priest and the priesthood. All of this is pointing us to Jesus. So let's read Hebrews chapter 9. Follow with me in your Bible. Then indeed, even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service and the earthly sanctuary. For a tabernacle was prepared. The first part in which was the lampstand, the table, and the showbread which is called the sanctuary, and behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the ark of the covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, and which were the golden pot that had the manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablet of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Now when these things had been thus prepared, the priest always went into the first part of the tabernacle performing the services. But into the second part, of the, into the, second part the high priest went alone once a year, 
and not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. It was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to conscience. Now concerned only with foods and drinks and various washings and fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of reformation. But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of, eternal, of, the, internal, of the eternal inheritance. For where there is a testament, or where there is a covenant, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is in force after men are dead, since it has no power at all while the testator lives. Therefore, not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water, scarlet wool, and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. Then likewise he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry. And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood there is no remission. Therefore it was necessary that the copies... The copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has not entered the holy place made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into the heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Not that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood of another, he then would have to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gospel. We ask that you would open our hearts and minds by your Holy Spirit. Teach us and change us and conform us to the image of the Son that our lives would bring glory and a witness to you in this world. In Jesus' name, amen. So there's a lot here in Hebrews chapter 9. Uh, we're going to cover the chapter today. 
Uh, we're going to go in much more detail on Wednesday night. Um, it is a lot. It's a great book. It's a great chapter. And so, um, just as a quick overview so that you kind of really catch what's being said here. So, the, the writer of Hebrews, the apostle, is writing and he's talking about the tabernacle. So the first five verses here, he gives a reminder to the Jews. They were very well aware of this, and they understood the layout of the tabernacle and the layout of the temple, because the temple was laid out exactly the same as the tabernacle. Though the temple was made out of stone, the tabernacle was a tent. It's called the tent of meeting. The layout of it was the same, the offering of the sacrifices uh, the veil, the first part, the second part, the most holy place, it was all structured the same. And so as the writer of Hebrews is laying this out, his Jewish readers understand perfectly the imagery that's being uh, presented here, describing this layout of the earthly sanctuary. And he reminds them that this earthly sanctuary was just a copy of, of the true and the heavenly sanctuary. And that everything that happened inside was simply a copy of the true. It pointed us to the true. It foreshadowed the true. And this is the point he's driving home with these Hebrew believers. That your trust is not in the copy in Jerusalem. Not in that which points us to the true and that's what they wanted to do. They wanted to go back to the copy, offer animal sacrifices, thinking that the blood of animals could somehow atone for their sin. And he's reminding them that this is impossible. That all of that at the temple, all of that in the tabernacle, it only ever existed to point us to Jesus. And now that Jesus is here, there is no longer a need to look to those things. So we see the layout in the first part was those furnishings listed. It was the, the menorah. It was the table of showbread. It was the altar of incense. And then there was another veil, and inside that veil, that was called the most holy place. That's where the Ark of the Covenant was. And above the Ark was the mercy seat with the cherubim whose wings just touched right there above the mercy seat. That's where the presence of God dwelt. That's where the priest would go in and only with blood once a year to sprinkle that blood on the mercy seat. And the fact that the priest came out showed that God accepted that sacrifice. So this is what the writer, the apostle, is laying out here in the first few verses of this uh, part of the letter. And he shows this tabernacle, this earthly tabernacle, pointing us to Christ in his incarnation. So by the time this letter is written, Jesus is already crucified. He's already resurrected. He's already ascended to the Father. But we know that the temple has not been destroyed yet. So we know the book of Hebrews was written before 70 AD because in 70 AD, that's when the Romans entered Jerusalem and the temple was destroyed. The city was sacked and the Jewish people were carried away captive. And so these Hebrews are wanting to go back to Jerusalem where the temple is still standing. So we know that this is in that interim period. So the old covenant is done with. Jesus has brought in a better covenant based on better promises. But there's an overlap of the old still being 
observed by the Jews who rejected Jesus, and here is the church, those who are followers of Jesus who understand that that temple in Jerusalem is simply a copy of the true, and it's simply pointing us to Jesus, who is the true temple or the true tabernacle. And so that tabernacle was was symbolic of that present time, the time when the writer of Hebrews is writing this letter. Christ had come, the gospel age had been inaugurated, and yet the temple and the system of sacrifice was still in place, but it was ready to pass away. In fact, in the previous chapter, the writer of Hebrews uses that term. He says this system is is vanishing away. And they how did they know that the temple and that system was going to vanish away, was going to go away? Well, Matthew 24. Read Matthew 24. Matthew 24 is not predicting a future event that has not yet happened. Matthew 24 is predicting what would happen in that generation. It's why Jesus said, this generation will not pass away until you see all these things. And that generation Jesus was speaking to saw the destruction of Jerusalem. And when Jerusalem was destroyed and the temple was destroyed, they knew the words of Jesus were true, and they knew that Jesus was indeed the Christ, the Son of the living God. And so the writer of Hebrews is pointing them to that time that's coming very soon because they knew that generation was reaching its end. And they knew that Jerusalem was still there and the temple was still there and it had not been destroyed as Jesus prophesied in Matthew 24. But he warns them that that time is coming and that system is vanishing away. And if you go back to Jerusalem, the only thing that awaits you is fiery judgment and indignation. Because they knew the prophecy that Jesus gave. And so the temple and that system was ready to pass away. And the time of reformation was at hand. And this is what we see in the first ten verses. So with the coming of Christ, the way into the holiest of all was open. So he says... Until the coming of Christ, the way into the holiest of all had not yet been manifested. Meaning, that high priest was the only one that could go into the holiest of all. And he could only go once a year, and he could only go with the blood of a sacrifice. And so the way into the holiest of all, the way into the presence of God was not made manifest yet. And God's eternal purpose was always that we would abide in and dwell in his presence. It was never God's eternal purpose for only one priest, one time a year, to get to go into his presence. And we know this because we see God coming to encounter Abraham. And we see Abraham fellowshipping with God one-on-one. We see this with Moses. Moses fellowshiped with God. It wasn't until after those things. It was not until Moses went to deliver his people from Egypt that God instituted the law and the priesthood. And that whole system was ultimately to point God's people to Jesus. And so with the coming of Jesus, the way into the holiest was open for us. 
Jesus is the way into the holy presence. And with his coming, with his death, his burial, his resurrection, and his ascension to the Father, the way to the Father is open wide for all who are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And what was only permissible once a year and only by the high priest is now open for all who are in Christ. In Christ, all may freely come into the presence of the Father. Now in Christ, the scripture says, we just read it here in Hebrews chapter 4, that we can come boldly, we can come with confidence to the very throne of grace. So with the coming of Jesus, the way into the presence of God was open, not just for a high priest, not just for a certain priesthood born of a certain lineage. But now God has, in these last days, poured out his spirit on all flesh. So under the old covenant, who was anointed with the spirit? Well, it was only prophets. It was only priests. It was only kings who were anointed as a symbol of having the Holy Spirit. And this was, jo- this was the point of the prophet Joel and his prophecies saying, centuries before the coming of Christ and centuries before the pouring out of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost, centuries before that event, the prophet Joel says, in the last days, God will pour out his Spirit on all flesh, not just male and female, not just rich and poor, not just slave and free, but on Jew and Gentile. Not just priests and prophets and kings, but common folk. Not just ethnic Jews, but every nation and every tongue and every tribe. I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. That's what that term all flesh means. And God did that. And here we are, the all flesh of Joel's prophecy. The all flesh of Acts chapter 2. Jew, Gentile, male, female, young, old. It doesn't matter. If you are in Christ, you have received God's Spirit, and you are able to come into the very presence of God. This is the result of a better covenant based on better promises. That was not possible under the old covenant. When Uzziah reached up to steady the ark because he thought it was going to fall on the ground. God struck him dead because he touched the ark. He was forbidden to touch the ark. And Uzziah just simply wanted to make sure the ark didn't fall on the ground, trying to do a good thing, and God killed him. It's exactly what the Bible says. God killed him. The problem with Uzziah is he somehow thought that he was cleaner than the ground that the ark would fall on. That somehow touching the ark with his sinful flesh was less contaminating than the ark touching the dirt of God's creation. That was his mistake. That's our mistake. Thinking that somehow our flesh is good. That we are good by the good things that we do. By the good intentions of our good works. We somehow gain an audience with God and can come into the presence of God. But God makes it very clear that's not possible. We are not qualified apart from Jesus Christ and apart the pouring out of His Spirit into our hearts. We are not qualified. We are not able to come into the presence of God. But the good news is Christ has come. And Christ has brought a better covenant based on better promises. And through faith in Christ, we receive the Spirit of God. 
And we are now able to come into the very presence of God, not because we are holy, but because the Holy One lives within us. See, when we touch God, we don't contaminate God. When we touch God, we are made holy. Remember the story of the woman at the well? I mean, the story of the woman with the issue of blood? Under the law, it was against the law for a woman who had an issue of blood to touch anything because anything she touched would be unclean. So in the time of her uh, monthly cycle, that woman would have to wait in her tent and she couldn't go out and do things and touch things because she had an issue of blood. She was considered unclean. And yet there was a woman who had an issue of blood for 18 years, the Bible says. And she had gone to every doctor she could imagine trying to find someone that could heal her and no one could heal her. And she hears about Jesus and she takes a gamble. She takes a risk in her uncleanness. She goes into the midst of a crowd and everyone she's touching is becoming unclean, even though they don't realize. God knows. And she's working her way to Jesus, and she says, if I can just touch the hem of his garment, I know I can be healed. That was her faith. And she's working her way through the crowd, and everyone and everything she touches is made unclean until she touches Jesus. And the moment she touches the hem of Jesus' garment, the Bible says she is healed and made clean and made whole. And Jesus stops the procession and he says, I perceive that virtue, that power has gone out from me. Who touched me? And his disciples says, Jesus, look at all these people around you. What do you mean who touched you? There's people pressing all against you. He said, no, someone touched me and I felt power go out from me. Now Jesus knew who touched her, who touched him. But he wanted that woman to confess that she had touched him because Jesus wanted to teach us something. And the woman says, I touched you, Lord. And waiting for her to be chastised because she had touched the rabbi in her uncleanliness and made him unclean, the exact opposite happened. She touched the holy and the holy made her holy. See, we're not holy because we are holy. We're not holy because we do holy things. We're not holy because we do good works. We're not holy because we pray a lot or read a lot or study a lot or worship a lot. We're holy because the Holy One has come to dwell within us. And the moment we're touched by the Holy One, we are made holy. Just like that woman was made whole the moment she touched the hem of Jesus' garment. Everything else she touched was made unclean. But when she touched the only truly holy thing there, the Lord Jesus Christ, she was made whole and she was made holy. That is exactly what happens to us. We can make the mistake and look at ourselves and look to ourselves and we can see our unholiness and our sinfulness and our shortcomings and they are there for all to see. But what we need to be looking to is the Lord Jesus. Because it is the Lord Jesus that has made us holy. It is the Lord Jesus dwelling in us by the Holy Spirit that now opens the way for us to come into the very presence of God. 
So with the coming of Christ, the way into the presence of God is open. And with the coming of Christ came the time of reformation. That phrase there, until the time of reformation, these things were imposed, that earthly tabernacle, that earthly priesthood, those earthly animal sacrifices, all of those things for centuries were imposed until the time of reformation. And that phrase, until the time of reformation, means until the time of the new order, until the time all things are set right, until all things are reformed, until all things that have been disconnected and taken out of place are put back in their proper place. The law, with its sacrifice and offerings, could make no one perfect. It was imposed as a foreshadowing of the substance who would come one day and make all complete. That substance is the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to the Apostle Paul in Colossians chapter 2, verse 16 and 17. So let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is Christ. Those things of the law with all of its sacrifices and offerings and ceremonies, all of those things those Hebrews wanted to go back to Jerusalem and participate in were imposed only until the time of Reformation or until the time of Christ. Christ is come. There is no longer a need for us to look to shadows. Christ came as high priest having obtained for us an eternal redemption with the eternal inheritance. What the earthly tabernacle with its earthly priest could only foreshadow but never obtain, Christ has obtained for us. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 and 12. Listen, but Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands. That was his body. That is his body. His body, his very being is the tabernacle that has come not made with hands, the perfect tabernacle. Not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place once for all having obtained eternal redemption. Christ has obtained for us what the first tabernacle and those priests who served in it could never obtain. He has attained for us eternal redemption. Through faith in Jesus Christ, we are eternally redeemed and we, re- and we receive the eternal inheritance, which is our salvation. If you are trusting in Jesus, you have been eternally redeemed. You need to have the assurance of that. If you are not trusting in Jesus, you need to be eternally redeemed because you have no hope in yourself or in anyone or anything else except Jesus Christ. The blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, will cleanse our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And for this reason, Christ is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of transgressions, for our transgressions, for our sins, for our shortcomings. 
that those who are called may receive the promise of the internal inheritance. Christ came as high priest, and he has obtained for us an eternal redemption with the eternal inheritance. And death is necessary to dedicate the covenant. Hebrews 9 verse 16 says, For where there is a testament, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. Your translation probably uses the word there, testament, but it is the same word that is translated covenant. If you see the word covenant in your Bible, it's the same word as that word translated testament. We think very often when we read Hebrews chapter 9, 16 and 17, we think of a will and testament. And it can apply that way, but I like the word covenant because that's literally what the word is. And I think it fits better and makes more sense with what the writer of Hebrews is talking about here. And he goes on in verse 17, For a testament is in force after men are dead, since it has no power at all while the testator lives. Let me read to you a Another way to hear that verse from Adam Clark's commentary on Hebrews 9.17. For where there is a covenant, it is necessary that the death of the appointed victim should be exhibited because a covenant is confirmed over dead victims since it is not at all valid while the appointed victim is alive. This fits perfectly with the, with the imagery of the Day of Atonement. So there, the high priest would have a goat. There were actually two goats. One goat was let go into the wilderness. It was called the scapegoat. The other goat was sacrificed. And the blood of that sacrificial goat, the blood was put on hyssop. It was taken behind the second veil. And the priest would literally sprinkle the mercy seat with the blood of that sacrifice. It was the same blood that was in that goat while that goat was alive. But that blood could not atone for the sins while it was in that goat, in that living goat. The only way that covenant could be enforced, the only way that atonement could be ratified, made real, was by the sacrifice, by the death of that goat and the blood of that goat being sprinkled on the mercy seat. This is the picture here. Jesus did not just come and live a sinless life and then go back to heaven so that we could be saved because that would not save us. The only way that we could be saved by Jesus' sinless life is if Jesus shed his sinless blood. And it was not until Jesus died and the blood of Jesus was applied to the true holy of holies. Not on earth, but in heaven. And this is why the scripture says Jesus passed through the heavenlies. Jesus never went into the earthly temple behind the veil to offer sacrifice for us. He never did that. He went into the temple. He taught. He preached. He worshiped. But he never went in as a priest to take blood for our atonement in the earthly temple. Why? Because that earthly temple was just a copy that spoke of him. He was the true temple walking around 
in the copy that was the earthly temple. And so when Jesus lived his sinless life, when Jesus was crucified and died and shed his blood, it was that blood of his sinless sacrifice that was passed through the heavens, that ascended to the presence of God. And it was his own blood and his own sacrifice that he presented to the Father that redeemed us. We could not be redeemed by Jesus until Jesus died. That's what this verse is telling us here. This is why Jesus had to die. Now think about, we're coming, we're in the Easter season, we're in the season of Lent right now. And think about the imagery. We'll read this later on. We'll see this later on as we go through. Think about the imagery of those, those people that stood at the base of the cross mocking Jesus. Ah, oh, you saved others. Why can't you save yourself? You healed others. Why don't you heal yourself? No true Messiah would die. You can't be the Messiah because you're dying. You're crucified. You're weak. You're powerless. You're just a man. You're a liar. You're not really who you claim to be. That's what they mocked Jesus as they stood at the foot of his cross. But the reality, and the reality is what the apostle here is writing. In case you think Jesus could not be the Messiah because he died on the cross and bled on the cross, understand this, until, until the victim of the covenant is killed, the covenant cannot be enforced. And the death of Jesus was necessary in order for us to experience the better co covenant and the better promises. Otherwise, it means nothing. Christ had obtained for us what the first tabernacle and those first priests could not obtain. His death was necessary in order for the covenant to be enforced. The shedding of blood of animals did nothing but the shedding of the perfect Lamb of God brought to bear in full force a better covenant based on better promises. And this is why Jesus himself shed his own blood to obtain for us what could not be obtained through the blood of animals in the ministry of an earthly priesthood in a tabernacle made with hands. Jesus is the tabernacle made without hands. And Jesus came to provide a better sacrifice that provides a better covenant based on better promises. It was necessary for the copy to be purified with the blood of animals. But when we talk about the true, it had to be something better than the blood of animals to purify the true. And only the blood of Jesus would suffice. Christ died and shed his own blood to dedicate a better covenant. The way we experience the better promise of that better covenant is to also die. We're trusting in Jesus, but our trust in Jesus means that we are crucified with him. The way we experience that better promise is to die 
to be crucified with Jesus and only through our death in the cross of Christ as living sacrifices will we truly experience his life. To be crucified with Christ is to die to self. To be a follower of Jesus is to live the crucified life. That can sound like a joyless existence, always dying to self. But the reality is just the opposite. We settle for far less because we fail to see there is far more. And that is an understatement of infinite proportions. We can't see what Christ has purchased for us, what Christ has given to us. We can only see what we are accustomed to seeing with the blindness and the darkness of our sinful beings. Because we are born in darkness and live in darkness, separated from the light of God, we are conditioned to the darkness. We can't imagine living in the light or being satisfied by those things found in the light. Until God intervenes and exposes us to his light, we only know satisfaction in darkness. That's why when you talk to some people, the thought of serving God, the thought of worshiping God, the thought of going to church, reading the Bible, living a life honoring to God seems like the most ridiculous thing you could ever imagine. Come on, man. we got to live life. We're only here once. Let's live it up. That sounds like such a boring existence. That's because they're used to living in darkness, and all they know is to be satisfied by their darkness. They can't imagine what it is to be satisfied in the light, in the presence of Christ. And we can never know that until God intervenes in our life and exposes us to his light. The light can be blinding, but God knows how to give us sight, and he knows how to give us a desire for the things that are found in the light. Christ has appeared for our salvation That's what the writer here in chapter 9 says. For our salvation brings about our change. When we are redeemed, we are changed. We are changed from darkness into light. We all once were darkness, Paul writes in Ephesians 5.8. But through the redemption we experience in Christ, we become light in the Lord. With that transformation of our nature from darkness into light comes a change in how we walk, how we live our life. If we are now light in the Lord by the redemption that comes through Christ, now we are to walk as children of light. We are to no longer walk in and engage with the unfruitful works of darkness. This is the condemnation of the world, that men loved the darkness instead of the light. This is what Jesus declared in John 3.19. As Jesus is explaining why he came to earth, he says this in John 3, 19, and this is the condemnation that the light has come into the world. And men loved the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. Those words of Jesus he spoke at the beginning of his earthly ministry. Three and a half or so years later, he declared these words recorded for us in John 12. He spoke those words in the beginning as he's telling people that he had come into the world for salvation. Then as he is preparing to be crucified, some three years after he spoke those initial words recorded for us in John 3, 
In John 12, we have the words of Jesus that he spoke at the end of his earthly ministry as he's preparing to be crucified. John 12, 44 through 46. Then Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And he who sees me, him who sent me. I have come as a light into the world that whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. He who believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. This is why Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you believe the Father, you would believe my words, Jesus said. So Jesus redeems us eternally in order to change us eternally. With our redemption comes our transformation. Our transformation begins with a single event Jesus called being born again of the Spirit. Our change is initiated spiritually through our new birth. And like our natural or our first birth, we mature and change over the process of time. This is the work of the Holy Spirit in us to mold and to shape and to mature us in Christ. The process of change in our spiritual growth and maturity is called sanctification. You're not earning your salvation. You're being sanctified. You're being changed. You're being grown up in Christ. And that process occurs over the entirety of our life here on this earth, living in these flesh bodies. The reality is we walk in the flesh, struggling with the lust of the flesh, but we do not war according to the flesh, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 10, verse 3. We war according to the Spirit, because the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but they are mighty through God's Spirit to cast down and to bring to nothing those things that tempt us and oppose the knowledge of God. And by the Spirit in us, we now have the power to bring every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Our salvation is the promise of a new, transformed life here and now and for eternity. We very often think we're going to get changed one day when we get to heaven. No, the point is Jesus came, He is our salvation, and your change and your transformation begins right here and right now on this earth, the very moment He causes you to be born again. Our new life begins through our death, not through physical death, but through our death with Christ in the cross through faith. To be crucified with Christ is the only way we can be raised in the resurrection life of Christ. It is the only way we can agree with the words of the Apostle Paul recorded for us in his letter to the Galatians. Galatians 2, 20 and 21. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul goes on and he says, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. Jesus came to be our sacrifice. He came to die for us so that we can die with him and be raised with him in his resurrection life. If we have been crucified with Christ, it is no longer you or I who live, it is Christ who lives in us. 
If Christ lives in us, it stands to reason that our life will be conformed to the life of Christ and make manifest that life of Christ in us. That means we are no longer living according to the course of this world, no longer living according to the darkness of this world, but now we live according to the way of Christ. We walk in the Spirit so that we no longer fulfill the lust of the flesh. We are children of light, therefore we must walk as such. And when our eyes are open and we see the salvation that has come with the appearing of Christ, we begin to experience all that is produced in his life and through his life. In Christ, we experience true love, true joy, true peace, true patience, true kindness, true goodness, true faithfulness, true gentleness, and true self-control. These are called the fruit of the Spirit, and only in Christ can we begin to know and experience that reality. And if we have never tasted, we can never know how good something is. This is why the Scripture says, taste and see that the Lord is good. God has taken us out of darkness and translated us into the light of His Son. And until we begin to walk in the Spirit, we will never be able to taste and see that the Lord is good. Only when we taste will we begin to realize just how good he is. Christ has come for salvation. I pray you know the Savior and you know his salvation. And I pray that he knows you. I pray that you are walking in him in order to experience the fullness of all that he has freely given to us in Jesus Christ. If not, through faith... You can begin right now. You can right now call upon the name of the Lord. You can right now, from a heart of faith, call on Him. And the Bible says, all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If you know His salvation, this is why we come to the table every week. You know His salvation, come to His table. Renew that covenant that he has made by giving up his body and his blood for our salvation. Come to this table and proclaim the body of Jesus and the blood of Jesus. Not trusting in your own good works, not trusting in what you can do, but trusting in what he has already done. Because if he has touched you and you have touched him, you have not made him unholy, he has made you holy. And this is why he invites us to come his holy table because we trust in his holy blood that was shed as he gave up his holy body for us on that cross so Christian as you trust in Jesus come to the table well let's stand here's your charge today that you taste and see that the Lord is good that you walk in his salvation and so walk in his way, no longer being conformed to this world, but being transformed by the renewing of your mind. God charges us to walk as children of light in this dark world that others can see by the light of the hope that has found us in Jesus Christ. Remember that we did not find hope. Hope found us. We were lost. We were dead. We were blind. We were in darkness with no hope of finding anything, but hope found us. 
And our salvation is a witness to those in need of salvation. It is a witness to the glory of God. We are charged to live in his life, to shine our light, to open the gates of our mouth and let the king of glory come in by proclaiming his praise. This is not the time to live timidly or quietly in fear. Now is the time to submit to God, to resist the devil, and to watch our enemies flee before us. Now is the time to stand in the land, and not only stand, but to stand in the Lord and in His power, to walk and to war in the power of His might, and to feast on His goodness, and to revel in his joy. If we can't see what we have gained in Christ, we can only see what we have lost that's of this world. And This is why we settle for lesser things. Let us be a people that would give witness to what it means to settle for higher things, for the things of God, for the things of Christ. He is our hope. He's our only hope in life and death. He is your salvation. Honor Him with your life and enjoy Him fully. That's why He died. So that you could live and enjoy Him forever. Amen?